welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Episode 116 of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Angela Samata, who is an arts professional and a suicide awareness and prevention advocate. And Angela presented the BAFTA Award-nominated documentary Life After Suicide, which was shown on BBC One and to date has been watched by more than 5 million people. And she made the film to challenge the stigma around mental illness and around suicide after her partner took his own life. And the documentary describes her own experience and that of her family as she travelled the country to speak to others who had experienced the same type of loss. And Angela has been an advocate for suicide awareness for many years and she's done some incredible things. She's worked closely with several charity organisations. She's advised on Hollyoaks storylines and she is a founding member of the Speakers Collective. And in this episode, Angela and I sit down in person to chat all about the different aspects of her work. We talk about the stigma that surrounds suicide and the complexities of dealing with this particular type of grief. We chat about finding a support system, about burning out and about combating burning out with baking bread. We talk about what it's like to go to the BAFTAs and be nominated, but be nominated because of a film that comes from such sadness and loss. And we talk about mental health awareness, her decision to become an advocate, and how the conversation around mental health and mental illness and suicide has changed over the years. This is a really beautiful episode. I was lucky enough to meet Angela last November at the HOPE conference, which is an annual mental health conference put together by the Speakers Collective. So we met there and it turns out we live in the same part of the world. So it made sense just to uh, record this in person and to sit down and have a chat. So Angela came to where I work in New Brighton. I've got like a little studio there as part of my day job. And she came down there and we grabbed a coffee and we set the mics up and we just started chatting. And it was a really, really lovely experience. We recorded this just before Christmas. I think there was something in that, you know, it felt quite poignant. And it was just, yeah, a real pleasure to chat to her. It's not the easiest episode to listen to, but I think when we're talking about suicide, it shouldn't be easy. You know, it should be challenging. It's a challenging thing. And a lot of the stigma around suicide exists because we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to say the word. We don't want to hear the word. We're scared of the word. We're scared of getting it wrong scared of saying something wrong uh, but we shouldn't be and we need to talk about it more and I always wanted Proper Mental to be a podcast that swims in the deep end you know I think there's enough fluff out there when it comes to the conversation around mental health and that's not really what I want to do and I think this episode is a really good example of exactly what I want this podcast to be. Angela is just the loveliest person. I just think she's amazing. She's great. Prepping for the episode she sent me through like a bio you know like a press pack. And the list of charities and organisations that she's been involved with over the years is incredible. It runs to like well over a page, whether that's as a, a chairperson or an ambassador or a volunteer. It's incredible. And I don't think we really touch the surface of some of the work that she's done, but we do cover a lot of it. And yeah, the whole thing was just a pleasure. I cannot thank her enough. It really felt in the moment and listening to it after like it's a, it's a really important episode. 
Everything you need to know about connecting with Angela is all in the episode notes or the social media, the website, all that sort of stuff. There's also a link for the Speakers Collective, who I'm a very big fan of, and they're definitely worth checking out. There's also a link to the Life After Suicide documentary, and if you want to give that a watch, you can do so. It's beautiful, it's touching, it's sad, um, it's everything really that you'd expect. But yeah, very beautifully done, and I'd recommend it. Yeah, it's really good. If you'd like to know more about the Speakers Collective, there is a previous episode with John Salmon, who's one of their directors. That's very good. That's worth a listen. Uh, Another charity that we mentioned in this is Chasing the Stigma, which was set up by Jake Mills. And if you're interested in that, uh, Jake and Chasing the Stigma, they do the Hub of Hope as well as loads of training around mental health. And if you'd like to know more about that, there's an episode with Jake. That's quite early on. That's in the first 20 or so. So you might have to dig that out. If you haven't already, you can give me a follow on social media at Proper Mental Podcast on all the usual social media platforms. And if you could take two minutes to review this episode or any other episodes that you listen to. Um, Some of those episodes could be, let's have a think, what else have I... I spoke to a guy called Gabriel Nathan, who is a suicide awareness advocate over in America. That was a brilliant episode. That was really well received. I'd highly recommend that. Um, I also spoke to Ben West. Ben West does a lot of work around suicide. Anyway, enough waffle. This is episode 116 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Angela Samata. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. Here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Angela Samata. How are you, mate? I'm great. Chilly, but great, yeah. yeah. Parked facing down the hill so that kind of I could get out of this amazing park that we're sitting in. Um, but yeah, I'm good. Really, really good. Yeah, it's probably a wise move. A lot of cars have been getting stuck here <laughs> this <laughs> this week. There's been a lot of that going on. But yeah, probably worth mentioning, actually, that we're recording this in person. That's, um, that's a nice change. Yeah. It's mostly Zoom at the moment for proper mental it's just I always prefer kind of anything that I can do in person now I'm kind of all over it because it's just like so it's just spent so long on zoom and you know and also I've been amazed at the amount of things that do work over zoom because I was totally skeptical about it so when people told me that they were going to have support groups on zoom they were going to have you know kind of art classes on zoom I was like totally skeptical I was like how is that going to work you know as somebody who's been involved with that kind of thing for like two decades in person I was like totally skeptical about it but then just my thinking was just completely transformed because I've seen the most amazing connections happen over zoom and the most amazing conversations that kind of could never really happen in person so yeah I love the fact that we're in the room together and and uh, even though it's snowy outside but uh, yeah I've I've kind of come to change the way I think about Zoom actually so I, I think you can actually end up reaching so many more people in so many different walks of life um, who aren't necessarily going to walk through the door of a support group or an art class so yeah yeah but it's great to be here in person oh mate yeah it was really it was really I, I thought it was cool like through the pandemic how quick everyone like you say, so many things went online and there were so many of us like, yeah, that won't work online. And it yeah. really does. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. I suppose we're, 
us humans, we're so adaptable, aren't we? We can yeah. kind of make anything work in yeah. any way. I mean, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, we were planning a... I'd been asked by, um, by the British Library to do some, you know, to kind of head up a project that was working with people with aphasia, you know, people who have... Um, for many different reasons, maybe stroke or head injury, have an issue around transferring what they're thinking into kind of words and, and, and kind of, you know, communicating in that way. And we had this art class and this project that was um, using sounds from um, from the British Library Archive to stimulate kind of artworks and, you know, people creating right, art. Yeah. And, you know, we had a choice, do we move that online or do we do we just forget it and do it? in two years time or whenever this is going to be over and I was persuaded and I have to say against my better judgment <laughs> to do it and send art packs to people in their homes and to, to still do it and I so as we say in this part of the world have my eye wiped <laughs> because it worked and it didn't just work a little bit it worked like like a dream you know like people totally being able to engage totally absorbed in what they were doing to the point where we had a couple of participants who you know when I was looking at the screen they had started using what we call their non-dominant hand to paint because they were so absorbed in the activity and the art materials and we documented it all it you know but just I'm not sure that that would have happened if we were in person there was something about that pinpointed concentration that allowed somebody's body to work in a different way which was definitely something that wasn't on my little evaluation yeah, sheet yeah. Know, oh, at the mate. beginning of the project that's incredible isn't I know, it you know I, know. I think like when it, I suppose when we're supporting anyone or and you know I suppose I'll relate it back to the mental health space but like I think the key is variation Mm. because so people just need different things Mm. and the more options available you're more likely to catch that person who's like you know oh I couldn't walk into a room full of people or you know from my own experience I'm like I'm like an introvert Mm. so the idea of turning up to a like a lads group that does five a size oh that would be hard work for me but I could love I could jump on zoom with my camera off and Mm. listen and you know but that's a gateway isn't Mm. it we just have to go go once and then it can it can turn into twice and three times and that can make a huge I think it massively challenged me as like a person in my kind of professional space you know because it was like I totally as a as kind of you know one of the project leads I was kind of saying to the British Library you know this is not going to work and I was I was like actually saying it over over a zoom meeting at the beginning of the pandemic you know I was saying this is not going to work you know and so for me professionally it really challenged me and kind of has really made me rethink and and take lots of the lessons that I've learned from the work that I do in kind of, you know, suicide prevention and, and how to look after people bereaved by suicide and and how that works and, and kind of bring that into my arts kind of professional space as well. So, um, so yeah, definitely a learning curve for me. Yeah, yeah, the best of both worlds, mm. I suppose. But, yeah, and, that, you know, that being said, it is nice to do things in person again. And we were just kind of talking about it um, off air, but uh, we met about six weeks ago at the Hope Conference, right? Yeah. And that was a really lovely thing to have all those people together in a, a space again after yeah. so long of things like that being online, right? Yeah. But that was a lovely day, eh? I mean, the Speakers Collective is just an amazing thing in its own right. I mean, the fact that it was Johnny Benjamin who originally got us all to get got some of us together and, and just said, look, what, what we see and what we feel in. And we were all some of us who've been talking quite quite openly and, and publicly around mental health issues for a long time were really concerned about people who 
kind of you know it felt like people were being wheeled out as part of you know lived you know the lived experience person in the room was was being asked to talk about their lived experience and then kind of you know coming off stage and just being left you Mm. know people some people weren't even getting their tube fare or their bus fare or not being looked after and yet being so integral to the to clinicians and professionals learning about their lived experience that they were like front and center of a conference so then to go on to to have the speakers collective where people can come together and support each other and kind of learn from each other as well but then to have our own conference (laughs) (laughs) where you've got like amazing people front and center but actually like everyone being looked after everyone just having the best lunch ever um you know everybody kind of just feeling really valued and and not a competitive space you know um I just love those days and um just kind of have the date ringed in my diary like every year because it's just so important to to just kind of just to be there together, really. And of course, we met. Yeah, so obviously, yeah. that's a, you know, the biggest <laughs> bonus, right? That alone yeah. made it worth it. That alone <laughs> yeah. made it worth yeah. it. Yeah, I've met so many lovely people. And mm. um, yeah, just people that are out there that you just don't hear of or don't know about. And it's so com- it was really comforting to me and really inspiring yeah. that people are just out there. Yeah. Um, you know, and we're in this social media-driven world where, and, you know, and like, like rightly so, people get, applauded for speaking out on mm. big platforms and stuff mm. like that and it's a mm. great way to reach a lot of people yeah. but sometimes it does feel a little a little empty or a, a little we're really quick to cheer one small thing yeah um and I kind of think like for everyone who you know shares that one post of a famous person speaking mm. out just mm. before their book comes mm. out maybe that mm. might be cynical mm. um but what if we all shared you know, I don't know, a post from the Hub of Hope or, yeah. you know, like it, yeah, yeah. If, if we could make those things go um, go viral, you know, it'd be great. But just knowing that there's those people out there just chipping away and doing their thing. I, I, I love that. I find it really comforting. I, I think that that is part of it. I mean, you know, I, I just think that like none of us arrive fully formed in the messaging that we want to give or or our exp- or how we talk about our experience. You know, I... I was kind of thinking on the way here that, you know, there's stuff going on and it's it's kind of, I think everybody feels the pressure, you know, we're, we're, we're speaking like just before Christmas and I've got a tree up, but I haven't bought a single present. <laughs> but I think sometimes, you know, on social media, it looks like we've kind of got it all covered. And actually, I'm not sure we have. I, I think, you know, when I look back on, on my experience, both actually in the art world and in the suicide prevention space, um, definitely made mistakes, like definitely. And there's definitely things I look back on and think, God, I wish I'd handled that better. I wish I'd made a different decision. Um, but I'm not sure if I'd have had Instagram 20 years ago when it when it all kind of happened. I'm not sure how much of that I would have been putting out there. But now I'm like fully, uh, fully okay with admitting that I haven't always got it wrong and and kind of the reaction that you get from that I think is people being really relieved at someone just being really honest about that and just being like really human about it because there's definitely things that I did at the time when I look back and probably still do that I just think you know if I'd have known now or no if I'd have known then what I know now I think I probably would have acted differently but 
I think that's just called being human. It is, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, like, we sh- I think we should be doing that. We should be, like, evaluating and, and looking back and changing mm. because if we're just doing the same thing mm. all the time and saying the same things and not mm. having that sort of almost clinical look at ourselves and, mm. and, and what we're putting out there, mm. um, yeah, it should it should change, you know? Yeah. I think it's easy to get, like, swept in. I've Sometimes I think with this podcast, like, I'm due a break just to let it breathe because mm. sometimes I find myself like three episodes in a row I kind of I feel like I'm saying the same thing or and I think right we need to see you know sometimes I think it's good to with any sort of advocacy to just take a step back and say right this is what I've done and I'm just going to let that breathe I'm mm. going to you know yeah. work out how I really feel about it rather yeah, than this yeah, thing yeah. that I've just been saying over and over again right because yeah, it can yeah. can get a bit like that but yeah, uh, absolutely. just to absolutely. yeah but I suppose um probably the best place for us to start today Angela is kind of like at the start of your your route into the advocacy work and mm. you know like can we can we chat about that how this all got yeah, started for you Maisie? Yeah, yeah absolutely um I can't believe I'm saying it but it is 20 years ago it was um <clears throat> 2003 so we were kind of just in the start of our like 20th year <clears throat> and it was October 2003 and it was kind of you know I always say it was like the best of times and the worst of times because at the beginning of that October um I got a job that I'd wanted for a long time so it was like my first kind of proper job if you like in the art world and it wasn't even you know kind of working directly with the paintings or the sculptures it was actually as a visitor host and somebody who worked in the shop at an art gallery but that took me close enough to the space that I wanted to be in that I would then um be able to see like the internal jobs that were um advertised so it was kind of yeah I'll take this little job that's 16 hours a week because it gets me into the room you know and uh it was also the worst of times because in the same month so that was kind of week one October 2003 and in the fourth week of October 2003 um we had two children we had um a three-year-old and a 13-year-old and you know we were we were going through a rocky time my partner and I Mark and um and by the end of October 2003 he had um ended his life and it was so shocking. I mean, I, I, I still find it really, really difficult to articulate the, the enormous um, life-changing impact that losing him had on so many people, like so many people. And I think that's one of my regrets is that now I understand how it works. You know, now I understand that even the person who was he was buying the paper from every morning will have been impacted by his death I know that all of the people he worked with all of the friends that we had all of the you know just the ripples of this just go right out but I think at the time after after he died you know nobody saw it coming and I think even if I had have seen it coming I probably wouldn't have known what to do about it at that point so what it meant was that by October 2003, at the end of October, I was a widow at 32. I had a three-year-old and a 13-year-old, and I had just become a single parent overnight. And that was before I even started to register the fact that he wasn't here anymore. So I 
kind of carried on because I wasn't really sure what else to do, if I'm brutally honest. Mm. I uh, probably didn't react in the way that I think now probably was healthy because I had amazing friends and family around me and I kind of cracked on. You know, I went back to work, the kids went back to school. And and again, when I look back, I just think, what was I doing? <laughs> like, you know, put, you know, going back into the art gallery where I've been working for like three weeks and people who didn't even know whether I liked sugar in my coffee, you know, <laughs> were kind of dealing with the weight of this massive thing that had just happened to me. And I'm kind of walking around just kind of half of me wanting people to ask me how I am and register that this experience has just happened and the rest of me thinking, please don't look at me, please don't ask me how I am. You know, so it it just kind of now I look back 20 years later I just look at the impact that it had on on me but and the kids obviously but just on all of those other people that I now understand like will have been massively impacted by by the loss of him and so things carried on so I carried on my career in the art world and I carried on and started a career in well, when I say a career, it wasn't a career. It was it was me trying to give a bit back to all the people that helped me to cope with being bereaved by suicide. Um, and that continues today. Yeah. Oh, amazing. I suppose, like, when something like that happens, and like you say, you kind of had other roles to fill, right? Mm. So, like, you know, you're, you're mum. You're still, you're still mum. So you're yeah. kind of like, yeah, you're helping other people mm. to grieve while figuring out your, your own. And it's mm. just... Uh, yeah it's a situation it's a kind of grief is that's a type of grief like no other isn't it grief is complicated yeah. anyway and yeah. we're really bad at it as human yeah. beings like yeah. anyway um but yeah I suppose that's just a a different a whole different grief yeah. experience did you know anything about mental health at that time was it on your raid like I mean as a as a conversation in in you know just being out there in the general world was it on your radar at all um no <laughs> if I'm really 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 honest um it wasn't and I think I was probably one of those people that is like oh there's no smoke without fire you know if someone ends their life there must have been reason you know that something must have been going on or they must have had this like terrible secret that they didn't want anyone to know about or you know I was probably one of those people um which I'm really ashamed to say that but we had we ne- we didn't know anybody else who had ended their life like and I think that actually we did know loads of people who who'd ended their lives. We did know, I did know loads of people who were bereaved by suicide, but nobody was talking about it 20 years ago. It was a completely different, like, world. For me, personally, you know, I, I, I mean, we knew we had friends who had had mental health issues. We wouldn't even call it that at the time. We didn't even know that phrase. It was that somebody was in the local... Um, hospital (laughs) you know it was like and we were being supportive but I think for me mental health when I look back had always been linked with addiction so I suppose I just thought that somebody with a mental health issue looked like someone who was drinking too much or someone who was smoking too much or somebody who was you know kind of self-medicating in some way but again I I can't begin to 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 kind of express how little knowledge I had you know, probably I didn't even know what postpartum psychosis was and I'd had two babies, you know, so I didn't know what 
I didn't know what, you know, I still called like postnatal depression, baby blues, you know, that kind of thing. So very naive. I mean, I, mean, I, I was very naive to this whole, whole kind of world that had just opened up. Um, you know, it was, you know, I, sp- I spoke to him 15 minutes before I found him. So for me, I was in one world 15 minutes earlier. And then, you know, by six o'clock, I was in a completely different world that I didn't recognize. And it was a landscape that I just had no idea how to navigate myself through or my kids through. Mm. Um, so it, it was that shocking. It, you know, I had no, no experience. Yeah, I, I think so many people are going to relate to that. Like myself, you know, I was, I was poorly, I was in the middle of a mental health breakdown and I would still say things like, oh, depression is just lazy people getting off work. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, it, yeah. you know, I think so many, because I think when you, um, when you like work in this field and you get used to talking about mm-hmm. it and yeah, you get used yeah. to hearing other people talk about it, yeah. you kind of feel like everyone's now talking about it, but yeah. it's only when you, you step outside of your, like, um, you know, your echo chamber for want of a better expression yeah. that you really, oh, hang on, there's still loads of people that really don't know about this yeah. stuff, right? That they don't. Um... Oh, absolutely. And I, I was definitely one of them, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, and it, I, you know, I look back now and I think, God, it was like such a charmed life really that I didn't know that the, this other space, this other world existed. Um, yeah. And I definitely did by the end of that day. Yeah. What what I've, what was other people's reaction to it? Because mm. the word suicide mm. is, is scary, right? Yeah. People don't like to say it. Yeah. People don't like to hear it. And yeah. people don't know how to behave around it. Yeah. Did you, you know, was it obvious to you that people are kind of, you know, just don't know what to more than any like we never know what to say when yeah. someone passes right but in that situation um people are really scared of getting it wrong and saying the yeah. wrong things did you see yeah. the, the kind of stigma around it i, I think for me be, because um because i found him and it was very obvious that he'd ended his life i think for me it was so unambiguous that there were things that i look back on now that so for instance you know like they treated my house our house like a crime scene because they have to like err on the side of caution they don't know what's happened I knew what happened because I was the first person to walk in but I think for lots of the people around me I think so much rightfully so so much concentration was just put on the kids that nobody was really thinking about it sounds crazy, but no one was really thinking about like Mark and like where he was at and w- why he might have done what he did. Everyone was just concentrating on the kids because I just had this little tiny three-year-old walking around and a 13-year-old walking around that was just dazed, you know? So I think it wasn't until later on that I even realised that suicide bereavement is such a specific type of bereavement and grief that I kind of... You know, that part of the conversation kind of didn't come up, if I'm mm. honest. I think probably there were lots of conversations going on around me <laughs> when I wasn't yeah. there. But it was like, you know, we'd become, you know, it was kind of all eyes were on us kind of thing. And everybody was trying desperately not to upset anybody else any more than we already were. You know yeah. what I mean? So I think the conversations that went on like after that or that were going on in the next room were probably around exactly what you've just said around you know, the fact that he'd ended his life. But certainly it wasn't going on around me at the time. It yeah. was like, who do you even phone? Who do you, 
how do you arrange a funeral? Like, what happens to him? Where's, you know, what's the logistics here? Like, I just had no clue. I had never dealt with a, with the loss of anybody before. And this was like in our house yeah. with the people that we loved. And so it was kind of, yeah, very, a very, very steep learning curve. Yeah, sure. Were you able to eventually like find um, like a support network or were you, um, you know, some to, to help you? you know through, yeah. through it yeah it took a long time actually when I look back now and I see people in support groups within like two weeks I'm like oh my god I wish that had been me you know um or you know I see people like you know on Twitter you know people will tweet to me saying I've just lost someone to suicide can you can you signpost me and I'm just like oh my god you know we have this whole kind of landscape has changed so much that you can just tweet a complete stranger or somebody that you've seen on TV and say, like, can, is there any way you can point me in the right direction of, you know? Because for me, it took me nine months and a doctor that knew me really well and a mum that wasn't saying no, (laughs) that wasn't taking no for an answer, um, to get me in front of my doctor who said, I've been waiting for you. And I was like, have you? (laughs) And she was like, yeah, because I just believe that things like this can't happen to people like you without at some point you knocking on my door. And uh, I didn't have an appointment. (laughs) My mum like marched me into the, the surgery because she knew that the day that I woke up about six, eight months after Mark died and I didn't know which way was up uh, was the day that the shock wore off Mm. and the anesthetic of the shock and the trauma was now allowing the full impact of this to register. So I remember waking up one morning just thinking, I don't know whether to get up or lie down. I don't know whether I need to eat or sleep. I don't know. I just didn't know which way was up. And I think it was just a moment where I'd been running at a million miles an hour trying to keep everything on track trying to keep the kids going trying to say the right thing do the right thing um keep paying the rent you know all Mm. the all the things that anybody who's been in my situation knows um and my head said you need to stop and it was as tangible as an actual like moment you know like I I just remember that feeling of just being completely disconnected like my head being disconnected from my body kind of thing (laughs) just like okay this is something's happened and I need to do something about this and um she gave me the number for Cruz, who gave me an art therapist, and I had an art therapist for six weeks because I worked in an art gallery (laughs) and that was really helpful um in lots of ways but it was really helpful in telling me what I didn't need at that point what I needed was to see and speak to somebody else who had been through this experience because I literally hadn't met anybody else at that point Mm. um and so I walked into my first um support group and that was through the survivors of bereavement by suicide and that was the that was the moment things changed um yeah that was a really that was one of the good decisions I made yeah yeah yeah. I suppose um seeing people on um their version of that journey but at different points of it you know you can kind of you can almost even if you can't see a way through you can almost 
like follow someone else's way through yeah. to you know to yeah. yeah and that was really important for me like just as somebody who was just trying to navigate through this I needed to speak to other people who were like five years down the line yeah. I needed to know like what do you do to get there like how do I speak to my children how do I deal with what's going on in my head I the other massive thing that was going on for me which I don't really talk about that often was that I'd started experiencing like really quite severe flashbacks and they were tricky really like anybody who is listening to this that has ever experienced flashbacks knows what I'm trying <laughs> I'm trying to articulate but they just stop you in your tracks you know I'd be in the art gallery and I'd be given a tour and I'd be talking about a painting and the next minute I could just see him and mm. what I'd walked into that night and it was so debilitating and so difficult and I didn't know that they had a name I didn't know flashbacks had a name I didn't know any of that so it was going to the support group and um and actually saying to someone while they were making a cup of tea <laughs> as you do um you know I keep getting these thoughts and I'm not really sure what they are and uh and she was like oh it's fine you know she didn't miss a beat she was still staring the the teapot you know oh it's fine don't worry don't worry love it's 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 flashbacks yeah and she shouted over another one she went you had flashbacks didn't you meanwhile I'm like feeling like I want to crawl under the table just like my my secret you know what I'd been dealing with for months was out there you know I actually thought I was going mad and um and and it was out there in this <laughs> in this support group of kind of strangers and um and they taught me what to do yeah. and I never had any clinical help with them at all it was the people and the generosity within that support group that taught me how to process how to be brave with the flashbacks and how to yeah what to do about them and how to feel and how to cope and and I never I never had another one wow and just to I suppose just to have it normalized on that way you yeah. know of people just chatting about it it's, it, it's like it's really interesting that you use the word being brave there as well because I think so much of um, you know recovering or or getting through mm. something there's so much it requires so much bravery mm. at a time when you don't feel like you've got any bravery mm. you know it's like it, it's such mm. a uh, when you haven't got anything to give but mm. to get better or a bit better you have mm. to give something and it, it, it's a really tough really tough you know place to be in mm. it's um yeah man well it, it for somebody who didn't even kind of you know, and, and you know the worst of it is I'd done a psychology degree. But like my you know, my psychology degree uh was like years earlier. And for me, and it, and again it just I look back now and I just think like, what? But I just kind of wasn't putting the two and two together. I wasn't putting like, you know, the stuff that I'd studied at university together with the what I was living and breathing now. So the stuff that I covered in university was kind of academic and text-based and actually I was living it and mm. we didn't talk about suicide in the psychology degree so I didn't kind of register that you know my my dissertation was about people's perception of HIV and AIDS and 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 how infectious it was and and people 
behaving in really odd ways around people with HIV and AIDS because of the stigma. I didn't know that people cross the road from you when somebody you love has died by suicide because they don't know what to say to you. Like, we never learned that bit. I knew that people had stigma, stigmatised views of people with HIV and AIDS, but I never thought about the stigma that I was now feeling. So the two things didn't connect for me until like years later when I started to be asked to talk publicly about my experience and and that's when things started to fall into place yeah yeah when when you did start to talk publicly was that uh were you approached or was that like a conscious decision like I'm gonna start speaking or did someone no I was I was approached I I the charity that had really helped me um sobs as we call it uh, terrible, terrible acronym. So, so, like, so when I became head of SOPS, volu- I was voluntary chair. The first thing I did was like, can we change the name of this? Because like, like every part of like, you know, I was kind of doing quite a lot of PR and, and stuff then. And I was like, is there anything we can do? Because like it's called SOPS and it like sounds like we just sit there crying all, <laughs> all the time, which we kind of didn't, you know. Yeah, there were tears, but there was just as much laughter. Paints a know? different picture. Yeah. yeah I was like, can yeah. we change the name of this? But no, SOPS and, and, and it's so much love. There's so much. I have so much love for that charity and organization but it was um through them so a woman called the amazing Jan Carlisle um asked me to speak publicly for the first time and I was terrified and she was just like just tell your truth you know talk about what this has been like for you and she was the first person to to ask me to speak publicly and I was terrified but I remember feeling when I came off stage the first time There was like two or three people hanging around at the side of the stage and I realised that they wanted to speak to me about their bereavement and it was in that moment that I realised the power of just sharing our experience, the power that that can have just to connect with other people who are just feeling like they're the only person that this has happened to exactly like I felt, you know? Yeah. Um, So once I'd done one... The pe- there were other people in that audience who then asked me to go to their conferences and speak or go to their kind of, you know, seminars and speak or whatever. And so it kind of picked up quite a lot of pace then. And I realised the power that can happen through through that connection. Yeah. Hearing a small part of yourself in someone else's story, it yeah. can never be underestimated. No. Never, never, never. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Um, ha- Did you ever have to... Because I think talking about your experience or anyone who talks about their experience, Mm. you have to try and find a balance of like how much of yourself you give to the, you know, so like a lot of people have a, you know, like a there's there's one version of the story that you can tell in a certain situation and there's maybe another in another, right? Mm. Did you have to kind of, how was it learning how much of you to give to the advocacy? Because it's not, like you kind of touched on before, talking about the Speakers Collective, it's very easy to say, oh, we need someone to talk about this, let's get Angela, but that's not often taken into account what it's like for you to have to say everything that you've just said to me, right? it was like another learning curve because I would just... At first, I would go on stage and I would just say it all. <laughs> it's like, and you know, I'd go home and I would just be absolutely knackered, like, like fit for nothing. 
like really, really, really exhausted and I would always go home with a headache and I realised that the reason why that was happening was because I didn't, I, I kind of, for me, at that point, boundaries were the little tiny ropes that you get around paintings and sculptures. They were boundaries. Right. Yeah. They were stanchions, as we call them in the art world. They were the boundaries, you know, so to stop people damaging paintings or to stop people kind of, you know, touching sculptures or whatever. So I'd never thought about my own. At me like that as me being the thing that was inside the kind of you know and needing boundaries like the first time somebody talked to me about boundaries I was like what you know you, what you don't you know you kind of have to look after yourself what you know and I kind of wasn't doing that and and I was really rubbish at that for like a long time even three or four years ago I mean this time three years ago I came so close to burning out like so close and it wasn't me that recognized it was like loads of other people around me wow. it was like friends and family and um so again another really really steep learning curve um and also because I'd lived it I had to kind of get my head around the fact that like how much detail you know because actually it's really hard to to hear that I don't know, there's, there's a way I, I think I, I learned to convey my <clears throat> story or my message or, or whatever it is in a way that, that made people feel okay and made people feel safe and wasn't triggering and wasn't, you know, so again, no one teaches you that stuff and they yeah. didn't then. So I've learned a lot, another steep learning curve. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it's a fine line. You don't want to trigger people, but you do need to challenge people, right? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, how did the documentary come about? Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that you've been, you know, talking a lot by this point and, yeah. you know, working in, in, in the space. Yeah. Um, but there's one thing, like speaking at conferences, yeah. there's another thing going on, <laughs> on like primetime telly. Did they, um, did they approach you? Did the Beeb approach you? Yeah, they, they came to me and um, they phoned me in the art gallery and my assistant at the time. So I was work- working in the Walker Art Gallery um, in Liverpool and I was winning one of the biggest art prizes in the UK so I was running the John Moore's painting prize at the time and I loved it really loved it and I've been doing it for a few years at that point you know 3,000 artworks from around the UK all get submitted every two years so you kind of see exactly the temperature of British painting you wow, know like yeah. it, it's just a phenomenal insight into kind of what's going on across the UK in art studios so when I got a phone call and I got a note on my desk saying that the BBC had called and we'd done quite a lot of press around um the art prize and you know people like David Hockney had won it and um you know Tracy Emin was involved in it and Peter Blake and you know so all of these extraordinary people so it wasn't unusual to get to my desk and find a note saying that the BBC have been in touch and want to speak to you and that's exactly what happened this day and it was about a film so I just phoned back naively thinking they want to make a film about the Hockney or they want to make a film about, you know, whatever. And uh, actually they wanted me to put the worst time in my life on, on BBC One at nine o'clock. <laughs> so it was like, right, I didn't, didn't, uh, didn't see that one coming. Um, but, you know, at that point I had spent 12 years trying to get people to talk about this, trying to 
just trying to break some of the stigma that I had felt and I had seen and that I was aware that my kids were aware of and so I just had to it was kind of I just had to put my money where my mouth was at that point I had to just just do it Mm. and um and worry about it later and um and so we did so I met with the guys who were doing the film and got on with them instantly and the director Leo Burley is the guy who just did the film about Mo Farah okay um and he's done loads of amazing kind of storytelling and 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 kind of incredible documentaries um the the um the exec on the film was a guy called uh, Fergus O'Brien who again has done extraordinary work and had worked with like Stephen Fry you know around his story and and made films with him about homophobia and you know so these people were not you know they were the best in the business so it wasn't like it wasn't difficult to trust them and yeah. know that I could trust them with our experience because this is not just about telling a story. This is about an experience that changed all our lives. So it, 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 it was such a, a difficult decision, but in a way I had to make it quickly because it, it was happening. So, uh, I said, yeah. And, um, and my kids were hilarious because the, then the 15 year old said mum we should do it you know if it helps one person you know I was and I was like really proud at his um at his response to it he was like yeah let's do it and and I said to my my other boy who was uh 20 what 23 at the time or whatever you know the BBC want to make this film about about dad and you know what do you think and he was like don't touch it don't touch it with a barge pole. They're going to make us look weird. And it's going to be like, you know, it's going to be like, you know, because he'd seen like my big fat Greek wedding and my family's like half, half Cypriot and the other half's Italian. And, you know, so he was completely convinced it was going to go down the like big, big fat Greek wedding kind of route. And, um, you know, and, and again, the director listened to him, listened to what his worries were. You know, he'd been he'd been the kid whose dad had died for like since he was 13, you yeah. know. So they listened to him. And so in the film which we made, uh, it's called Life After Suicide. Um, you will hear that my eldest doesn't talk about his dad in the film. And that's very deliberate because the director was so sensitive to his where he was at with this at the time that he didn't push it and none of it, nobody pushed it. And we just let the kids, um, be as they wanted to be. And it was totally the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, mate. What, what was the, the process of filming it? Like I had, um, I had Gail Porter on. Oh yeah. And go she, on. she made the being Gail Porter documentary. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, she said it was awful. She said the. She said it was absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> she said it was. There was nothing pleasant about it really? at all. Did you have a, a similar experience? Or <laughs> she said it took months, and it was just like you know, well, she's just no. constantly going back through all this, all this stuff. Um, well, I didn't because, well, basically, yeah, it was about our story, but I also went around the country like interviewing other people and. And I think that it wasn't awful. I mean, there were times in it that were hilarious, you know, like when Johan, the the um, the the head of um, 
I don't know what his proper title is. He he'll kill me for this, but you know he was like the head of cinematography on the on the film. So he was the guy that had the camera quite a lot of the time, and he's just amazing. And um, you know when he said to me, "Oh yeah, we're we're just going to put this little camera on the front of your car, and we're going to," you know, I'd never been film driving before. <laughs> and they, I got outside, and I, I've got like a little a little 20 year old MX-5. So it's like a little two seater, you know, cute little thing that I was only going to have for a year as like a little play thing. And then I've still got it like 10 years <laughs> later. And um, he, and I went outside and got, and I was like, what the hell? And I literally like couldn't turn right in the car because the camera was so big that they <laughs> lashed to the bonnet that like I couldn't turn right because I literally couldn't see the oncoming traffic. It was like, I was like, like, Johan, I thought he, said, he was like, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. It was like, so, you know, there were moments of like technical stuff yeah. that was just a complete eye opener. It's like, what? You guys do this? You know? And um, uh, so... But then there were part of it really, really quickly where the cameras just didn't exist. You know, there were there were conversations. So I interviewed like David Robb, who was an actor in Downton Abbey, whose whose wife had ended her life. And I interviewed him and I'd, n- I'd never met any of the people I interviewed before. They kept me outside in the car like a, a naughty puppy and <laughs> <laughs> would go in and like set up the shot and then bring me in. So I'd be meeting these people for like the first time and you can tell, you know, when when we say hello to each other it genuinely is like the first time we've met but with David especially uh we were in his little tiny living room in 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 South London and um and he just turned to me in the film and he just said to me tell me this gets better Mm. and when somebody who's lost their loved one says that to somebody else who's lost their loved one the cameras don't exist anymore the lighting doesn't exist the mic doesn't exist anymore because you are just having a conversation with someone who is looking you in the eye and desperate for you to to throw them a lifeline and I was really honest with him and I told him that it does because it does get better for me um and so in that part in the film you know and again I, I looked around and the director was crying, the the camera guy was crying, you know, everybody in the room was just together in that moment. And uh, we've been friends ever since because of that moment. Yeah. Wow. It's a beautiful thing uh, to, mm-hmm. to come out of it. Yeah. <clears throat> I've watched, I'd, I'd seen it anyway, and then I watched it again mm. um, in preparation for this. Mm. And um, it's a, a really, I mean, it's beautifully done. Mm. It's really challenging watch and you know I think these things need to I'm quite a critic of conversations around mental health and mental illness being a little fluffy being a little sort of Mm. coca-cola light and Mm. a lot of people that's not their experience Mm. of of being poorly or having a loved one who's poorly or stuff like that and so I think these things need to be challenging but um yeah like for me um a lot of stuff with the with the kids and with your kids and with the um you know the dad who had the the five daughters yeah, that yeah, yeah. ended me yeah, you know, listening to okay. them chat because yeah. I'm I kind of watched it from the other perspective okay. because like I was going to end my life and I'm yeah. still here yeah. and I had what I thought were very very good reasons for doing it mm-hmm. and then when you see from the perspective of the people that are left behind how yeah. null and void those reasons were and yeah. the effect that it had yeah. um that's that's heavy yeah. 
but I think it's really beneficial for like for both sides. Mm. So there's the people that have been bereaved, mm. you know, they can feel seen, they can get hope, they can have that from it. But from people from my perspective, to see, to have, to be out the other side, I suppose, and to have it confirmed mm -hmm. that it was right not right to stick around that's the wrong way of mm -hmm. saying it mm -hmm. but to see the effect it would have had like yeah. the actual effect not the effect i thought you can't trust your thoughts not when you're well when your brain is sick yeah. it's lying to you yeah. it's like texting when you're drunk yeah. <laughs> you know like it's just it's not true um and to see that i like you know both sides of the coin will massively yeah. benefit from watching yeah. that film yeah. um and yeah it's a it's a wonderful thing Thank you. It's a wonderful thing. Thank you. Well, it was the team, you know, it was, it was just, they were just, ex I mean, there was a, a woman that we worked with on the film called Jenny Williams, and she was just extraordinary, you know, she just made sure that I was it. Well, they all made sure I was okay, you know, but she really, really looked after me. And we filmed it at this time of year, so we were still filming right up until... Uh, the day before Christmas Eve. Wow. So it was kind of, we were filming now and um, it was, you know, it was just extraordinary because everybody in the, in the crew and I, I, I really believe that if you're going to make TV, it's got to, you've got to have complete trust and you, there's got to be a lot of love in that room because you can't do this. You can't do interviews like you've just pointed out with the with the Hebden family who had lost their mum to suicide and you know those those five girls um you can't interview a four-year-old without knowing that the crew and everybody else in that room is covered mm. you know that everybody is safe and that everybody is feels okay to be honest about where they're at and and that's one of the reasons why the film doesn't live on iPlayer. You know, we, the, the film could have lived on iPlayer forever. And part of the reason why we thought about it shouldn't just be there forever is because one of those girls, yeah, that, you know, one of them's a teenager and, and they go right through the whole kind of age range. So if that film had been just permanently on iPlayer, you know, those, those children would be growing up with that permanently, with that moment permanently captured and it kind of just didn't feel right. So it lives on a different platform. It lives on, on a platform called Documentary Heaven. And um, there's a link to it on my Twitter because I still get asked, you know, seven years after that was first shown on BBC One. It's been shown like lots of times since, but I'm so proud of it. Mm. And I'm so proud of every single person who contributed to it, of every single person who appeared in it and, it, and, and was so generous with their lived experience because I think it made it what it was and um, and it ended up at BAFTA and yeah. that was not because of me that was because of all of those other people working together and making people feel safe and allowing people to just talk about this really difficult stuff on on primetime TV yeah was that strange having like a, a BAFTA nomination but then also you know naturally with the like like sadness attached to it it's always yeah. a strange isn't it to have a really it happy was, thing and a really happy a uh, really sad thing and you kind of squish them together almost right? it was the strangest thing I remember being on the red carpet and um I didn't know how to feel you know I, I was super proud of the film super proud of what we'd achieved super proud of everybody involved super proud of like Rebecca who allowed me to interview her like five weeks after her husband died by suicide 
and I didn't know how to feel because I was super proud. I was I was super excited to be a BAFTA. You know, I was in the same category as Louis Theroux, for God's sake, and <laughs> Adam Curtis. You know, they're, they're like dream dinner party guests for me, you know. And yeah, I was there because we had experienced a devastating loss of Mark and he had felt like taking his own life was his best option at that point. And... So for me, it was crazy. You know, there's photographs of me on the red carpet looking, looking, you know, if I must say so myself, pretty damn okay. You know, I had a Vivian Westwood gown on. I had, you know, 10 grand's worth of diamonds in my ears. I had, you know, I had my jewelry sponsored. You know, it was kind of uh, an amazing thing to happen. And yet I was there for all the wrong reasons in a way, you know, because because of that yeah so it was I felt really conflicted and I've never been uh more grateful that I don't drink because I think if I drank I I think I probably would have uh just been a mess by the time (laughs) by the time I got to that red carpet um but you know I don't know I, I think it's what I think it's what my youngest said you know if it makes a difference if it helps one person if it if it leads to conversations like this today with you, who's, who, you know, you've been there, you've been on the other side of this. If that's the reason why, then that's, that's okay. Yeah. Because that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes like with these hard decisions, it's like, well, you know, should I do it? Can I do it? Yes. Mm. Well then almost like you have to, does that make sense? Mm. Not like you have to, as in, you you know, you're forced to, but if I can, if I can hold this space for people, then I'm going to, I'm going to hold it. Right. um, I've always said it, you know, I I will carry on using my voice as long as people ask me to, and only until other people find theirs, because I still have people messaging me on Instagram, on Twitter saying, thank you for, to everybody for making the film. Thank you for, thank you for talking honestly about what this can be like because actually I didn't know that this had happened to other other people and they felt like this and that's okay you know and that and I think that that's what enables me to carry on doing what I do is because it's still helpful to people when it stops being helpful then you stop Mm. and for me I'll always feel like that yeah yeah did you get a, a lot of people reaching out after it aired I mean, I, I think it's like every time it airs, but now it lives on its own platform permanently. People find it or, you know, somebody got in contact with me recently to say that I'm being used as part of a module on a, a university course. Now. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's again, it's not me. It's my experience and, and the experience of other people around me, you know, really thinking about, you know, if they're watching our film and they're thinking, right, how can I work as a clinician better with people bereaved by suicide? How can I work as a as a policeman? How can I react differently to people bereaved by suicide as somebody, you know, in A and E, how can I react differently to somebody who may have um attempted to end their life you know if it gives people that space to just think about an experience you know one one of the things I wanted to say to you was that I never wanted to make anybody who and this was really important for me during the filming and and everything that I do I never ever would want to think that for a second I've made anybody feel bad about feeling suicidal you know when we interviewed the kids I never wanted 
anybody to look at that and thinking, you know, I feel guilty about feeling suicidal because they could be my kids. And for me, that's where the really, really fine line comes in. Mm. Because I've had loads of people who've said to me, I know, why don't we just bring somebody into a support group of people bereaved by suicide? Why don't we just bring somebody in who has experienced suicidal thoughts and feelings and have them in the same room? And I still find that really, really difficult because I wouldn't have wanted that for him Mm. when he was obviously feeling suicidal and I didn't know. You know, I'm... I think we can gain from each other's experiences in so many ways, like this conversation, hopefully. Um, I don't think that you have to force it to have people bereaved by suicide and people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts and feelings in the same room necessarily. I don't know. I don't know what that does to an individual. I don't, Mm. I don't, I still don't feel like it's the right thing to do. I might be wrong. I'm willing to be wrong about lots of things, but it feels, and I've I've been asked, I've been asked to facilitate it like several times, and it just feels. I don't know what you feel about that. I, ju- mm. I just feel like it's. I think that on both sides, the complexities and the nuances would be too much to mm. just take too. Like it's almost like um, making suicide like an umbrella. So like yeah. you're thinking about it, you've experienced yeah. it. Yeah. Like the the. That's not how it works, yeah. right? And I think that f- uh, when someone's poorly, it, that doesn't that that doesn't matter. Yeah, that doesn't matter. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I, I knew my wife mm. would be sad. Mm. I knew, I knew it. Mm. I, I convinced myself that mm. she'd be better without me. Mm. I knew she'd be sad. I didn't think she'd like. I didn't think it would be easy for her. You know, it didn't. It didn't make a difference. To, did uh, my, did you think like where your head was at at the time? Did you feel as if? Yes, she would be sad, but then she would get over that. Or mm. did you think that, like, then she'd go on to have like a different, better life? That, that's exactly did, what I thought. Had your head gone there? Like, yeah, that's exactly you... what I thought. I thought, like, oh yeah, like it'll be, you know, it'll be shit initially, yeah. but you know, she'll she'll be all right. She'll meet someone better. Mm. You know, that's mm. that's exactly how I mm. saw it. Mm. Saying that now, mm. ridiculous. Like mm. I know that's ridiculous. Mm. Um, and even then, I probably did as well. But you know, <laughs> like it doesn't yeah. make sense. I think a, you know, never in- underestimate the power of a of a poorly brain because mm. you f- you you're listening to your thoughts mm. you're believing your thoughts and they are not true mm. they're lying to you mm. but in that in that moment you can't separate the you know mm. just yeah everything gets too far gone mm. but yeah i think it would be dangerous to put mm. those two groups of mm. pe- demographic mm. together I can and it, you know i can see why it's tempting you know because i like i spent a long time trying to get into his headspace trying to think like what part of him thought that we'd all be better off without him like what part of him what enabled that thought process to happen like because it must have happened because he he adored those children at the vet you know at the very least he adored so as opposed for me like I spent a long time like lots of people do who are in my situation trying to get to that headspace like trying to think about okay so so what was happening for him that meant that he genuinely believed to the point of action that 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 was the best course of action for him and for us because he won't have just done that you know he was a beautiful person he won't have just done that purely you know out of any other reason so I suppose again it just 
took a long time for me to just think about that and just to consider that and actually then to let that go. Yeah. Because I can't get there. I can't. I'm not somebody who's ever experienced suicidal thoughts. So I can't get there. But I think what I can do is know now the link between, you know, people who are bereaved by suicide that, you know, I know that like, I'm now in a high risk group myself because I've been bereaved by suicide. Now that kind of conversation definitely wasn't going on 20 years ago. Like definitely not. Yeah. That link between suicide bereavement and suicide prevention, the two things were like so separate, like Mm. so separate. I can't tell you. Now it seems nonsensical that we weren't having the same conversation. But um, suicide prevention was definitely seen as separate to suicide bereavement. And I think that's one of the biggest changes I've seen. Yeah, I suppose it's, yeah, people being more aware. I suppose, to to, again, you can always look at it from both sides, can't you? So if you're talking about suicide prevention, it's like people looking at the people in their lives and spotting Mm. signs Mm. and finding Mm. ways to to Mm. reach out to them. But Mm. then also for the people who are who are in it to spot signs in themselves as well because I think a lot of a lot of times it's you know it starts off as one thing Mm. you know it Mm. doesn't just these dark thoughts don't Mm. you don't just start at the at the darkest end right it starts as like a little thing and that little thing sort of snowballs but I think if you look at things like the grief to hope report it's it's freely available you can look it up so it's grief the grief to hope report and it came out like last year and that actually asked people bereaved by suicide like over seven thousand people like how did you act how did you feel afterwards and there's a whole list of behaviors that people have told told us about that they have engaged in or or, or been part of as a result of their loss by suicide and it looks like risk I mean I was so shocked when I saw it all written down like that in a beautiful table <laughs> I was like what you know so if you ever I mean, it's just fascinating that people have been so honest and generous, but it's given us such a massive insight into the behaviours that are associated with suicide bereavement, and it looks like suicide risk. So, it, again, I'm still learning, you know, every single time I speak to an amazing person who's sharing their lived experience, I'm, I'm still learning about this stuff. I definitely, definitely haven't got it nailed. Yeah, definitely. I suppose there's like a different. Everyone's got their own version, so as many people there are yeah. that can go through these things, Absolutely. and they're going through their own version. Absolutely. And, you know, Absolutely. that's uh, that's why it can be more challenging, yeah. I suppose, to nail it down yeah. and and generalise yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mate. There's a couple of other things that I'm really keen to touch on. Okay. So we're going to go rather than try and segue them in. Okay. Go. We're going to go for <laughs> it. Um, but first of all, I know that something that's a really important part of your life is baking. <laughs> I want to chat baking. <laughs> I'm always up for a sourdough conversation. Yeah, there you go. I was hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> I've been everywhere. I told you I was well prepared. I told you I was well prepared. But that's your. That's like a big self care thing for you, right? Though. Oh my god, massive, massive. My uh, so Stephen, my sourdough starter is called Stephen because the person who made it for me and taught me about sourdough was called Stephen, and um, I was burning out. You know, I was, um, I remember checking my diary on Christmas Day and checking my emails on Christmas Eve and I thought, something's wrong, you know. And um, I walked past my desk. I, I'm really lucky I've got, like, a really nice home office and I, I walked past my diary and it made me feel sick. 
and I thought something's happening and um, other people had started to notice it. So Stephen said, I think you need to make bread. And I was like, yeah, I think I don't need another thing to worry about. And he was like, no, 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 it takes you to a different space. You're using your hands. You can't like, you've got flour all over your hands. You've got, usually got flour in my hair as well. Um, it takes you to a different space. It's not about another thing. It's about just not looking at your computer, not writing an email, not writing anything for a magazine. Not it, It's different. So he made me a starter and then he went back to Copenhagen and um, and then publicly started tweeting to me saying, where's the bread? And <laughs> like, putting pictures of his loaves up. And I was like, competitive Ange like, definitely came out and I was like, right, I'm going to do this. So he bought me a bread book and so I made my first loaf and was like, so I burnt my first one because... Um, I cook so little on this like amazing like range cooker we've got like this really exp- expensive amazing cooker. Um, I grilled the first loaf because I didn't know what the symbols were on the, on the oven. So it came out this you know I put this loaf this this loaf that I'd nurtured for like days you know because you got to let it rise and all of that. And I put it in the oven, then it just, this smell was just horrific. And then I went downstairs and I pulled it out the oven and the top of it was just black. And like the dough was obviously still raw. And because it had risen, it was like this horrible, weird <laughs> shape. It was like awful. It was, it looked like it belonged in an art gallery, not not in, in anyone's kitchen. It was vile. It was awful. And um, think Chapman Brothers, you know, and it was bad. And... Um, so I that didn't make it to Instagram, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and I, um, yeah, and so I carried on, and I love it so much because it just takes me to a different space, and um, you've got to nurture it, and you can't be on the computer at the same time on the laptop. And so, so yeah, I love it. And then my friends started like properly ribbing me about it. They were like, stop it with the bread. Cause I was like talking about like, it was like a sourdough evangelist, you know, it's <laughs> like, do you want some of my starter? Do you want, and they were like, no, we don't want any starter. We're like really busy. And um, so it's got a separate Instagram now. It's got its own Instagram called Superstar Sourdough because um, it is the superstar of breads. And uh, and I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, there's, I always think there's a really lovely metaphor. Um, something I like. I'd have to figure out the words properly, but something around what it takes to make bread, particularly sourdough, right? Mm. Um, and self care and caring for yourself because yeah. you gotta, you know, you gotta invest the time and the love and do the oh, right yeah. things and you know let it let it relax and rise when it needs to keep and all that warm, sort of stuff keep it fed yeah, yeah yeah there's something there's something in there yeah but you know it's really important and i think instagram will tell us that self-care looks like one thing and we all have to do yeah. this thing but it could be anything yeah, can't it yeah, that yeah. just like brings you joy and takes you away from yourself for a little yeah. bit and uh and you know the thing is i loved the fact that it was so simple because i thought it was so complicated mm. and actually a loaf of sourdough is flour and water and salt and that's it and I love the fact that it's like simplistic and it's like takes a long time and because I was all about the quick wins, you know, I was, I was all about it. So it's kind of like taught me quite a lot. So I still I still uh, make bread and I just have to choose when I do it. And but for me, it just taught me about, yeah, uh, just about looking after myself and just about giving myself a bit of time Um to, to kind of just process what was happening and what I was saying and, and what other people were saying to me as well because I just wasn't getting time to process anything. Yeah, slow it down, eh? Thank you so yeah. much for talking about my bread. Oh, mate, no <laughs> worries. <laughs>
no worries at all. Um, something else that I really want to chat on because I think obviously we both live on um, Merseyside. We live quite close to each other, and I think Do you live on the Wirral or in the Wirral. I mean, I'm not even from the Wirral, so I just say what everyone else says. <laughs> but my wife would say on, so I probably yeah. say on. I'm yeah, on. yeah. Um, on the Wirral. Yeah, I, I think that um, Merseyside is particularly blessed when it comes to mental health support, mm-hmm. and the more. Um, like the amount of organisations, both sides of the water, that are doing yeah. incredible yeah. things. Yeah. And yeah, I just thought that'd be kind of interesting to <clears throat> touch on, really, because I think a lot of people have absolutely no idea what is around available to them in the local community. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I know from my own point of view, I used to Google stuff, you know, yeah. two in the morning at my laptop in bits, and I'd be Googling stuff, and it'd come up with all this, all these amazing things, but they weren't they weren't close to me or yeah. they involved a phone call or it was like the Samaritans, which felt yeah. like too big a, too big a thing. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, we're really lucky in this oh, part yeah. of the world, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, with yeah, all yeah. the um, different, uh, and there's something for everyone as well. Yeah. I mean, it, I think that, you know, we've, we, um, I was again, just great privilege to be involved in setting up uh, James's place in Liverpool. And it, it's just one example, you know, we've got the Hub of Hope, which which I love, and you've, you've had Jake on the podcast mm. as well, haven't you? So the Hub of Hope is definitely a go-to for me. And I still like signpost to it all the time, but that was born on Merseyside. And um, when we, when I was involved in setting up James's place, it's a, a place that we have in, in Liverpool, in the in the heart of the city centre, which is a, a place where um, men who are in suicidal crisis can go, and it's specifically for men. Um, and when that, when we were thinking about where that might happen, so it was um, a woman called Claire who who lost her son to suicide, and she had always had a dream of setting up a place that that wouldn't have turned him away, that he would have wanted to go to. Um, so when she was looking around the country, she could have she could have set it up anywhere because he had connections to lots of different places. He went to university in a different place. But actually, it was um, a woman called Pooja Saini, who is now at uh, LJMU, uh, John Moore's University, um, who said, brought Claire to Merseyside. And then she walked into a room where Pooja had just said, right, let's get together. Let's see who we can get together to think about having James's place, as it now, is now called, here on Merseyside. And the thing, the reason why we ended up getting it here and not Newcastle or Bristol or wherever else it might have been um, was because when she put the call out, when Claire walked into the room, there were 30 other people sitting there from the police, from the university, from Merseycare, from all of these different organisations who were just like, how can we help? Like, how can we make this happen? So for Claire, who isn't from Merseyside and has no connections on Merseyside, it was the right place to set up the first James's place because of the air of collaboration and kind of how altruistic people were being and how welcoming people were being. Um, <clears throat> you know, I remember getting in a taxi with her and the taxi driver offering, offering us lollipops, you know, just being like super friendly, saying, where do you want to go, girls? You know, <laughs> um, she's the the Marchioness of Milford Haven. You know, no nobody needed to know that. She was just she was just treated as Claire. And uh, so that's how the first James's place was born here in, in, in the heart of Liverpool. And now we have one in London and there's an, you know, there's another one being talked about. And, and so it so it goes on. But the reason why it ended up here was because of that collaboration, because of that real want to to make Merseyside and, and the Liverpool City region 
a place where people know how to signpost and, and there's there's actual real places and and for, you know agencies support agencies that you can refer into so i i don't think it's any accident no no very much so i suppose i wanted to mention it because i think if we're obviously if we're both based here a lot of people mm. listening are probably mm. going to be from around yeah. here and yeah you mentioned yeah. james's place and sean place and first person mm. cic mm. and uh mm. the lee cooper foundation mm. and you can just list them and mm. on the wirral you know we've got journeyman we've got the open door yeah. um just these amazing yeah, yeah, the martin gallier foundation you could just yeah. go and go and go can't you it's, i mean the um, it's thing incredible. i'm a bit worried about i have to say is i don't know where the places are for women Mm. And it's something that I'd like to do a bit more work around this next year, actually. So there's a few conversations going on. But I think for a long time, rightfully so, we concentrated on men who were feeling suicidal. Again, rightfully so. I make no, no, you know, I have no problem with that. It's exactly what needed to happen. But I just worry about where our women are going who are feeling suicidal. You know, yes, 75% of people who end their life um, are male, but 25% still are women. Still a big percent, yeah. And I, I, still don't, I still don't hear it being talked about. I don't. And I hear about the impact of it all the time. Like the girls that I interviewed mm. in Life After Suicide lost their mum. So I see it and I hear about it. I still struggle with where to signpost women to. Really struggle with it. Um... So I would really like to do something about that. And I'm not really sure what, and I, I'm not really sure how. I'm not really sure whether it's another film, you know, whether we make a film about um, female suicide and, and, and women who are feeling suicidal. And, you know, I don't want to talk about it just solely in connection with the menopause. Um, I, think there's a, I think there's a whole conversation that we're not having. Mm. And I'm a little bit worried about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a wonderful point. I suppose um, it's like a, a almost like a pendulum, isn't it? And yeah. you get that momentum, and like you say, focusing on men's mental health, and it's amazing. Yeah. And that pendulum start, and then all of a sudden, yeah. it's gone so far yeah. one way yeah. that there's yeah. yeah, it needs to come come back the other. It's a wonderful mm. point. Mm. Yeah. Oh, mate. Well, certainly worth thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love how these ideas come about and how they grow isn't it you kind of yeah I think something needs to happen in this space and then yeah. you kind of like next thing you know something's happening mm. and it's mm. often not what you expected or how it expected no. or I mean we're, you know with with again when you look at the statistics it tells you one story but I kind of again when I'm asked to signpost I'm still struggling where to signpost our women to so and you know I've, I've been into um, style women's prison and done some work in there and again I just wonder about when when the people from style, when the women from style are coming out and if they're experiencing suicidal thoughts, I still don't know where to signpost them to, specifically for women. So again, I feel as if that's something that I definitely want to have a conversation about or, or make a film about or do do something around that. Yeah, yeah, shine some, some light on yeah, it. Yeah, no, absolutely, because I just think it's something that we're not talking about. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose, you know... It, if that doesn't happen, then mm. it becomes a gap, doesn't it? It yeah. becomes a hole that people start falling in and or, then or it becomes a problem. Or it becomes a myth, you know, that only women who are experiencing the menopause feel suicidal. <laughs> and, you know, I again, we've just got to be really careful that we're not just going down that route, you mm. know? Um, so anyway... 
definitely definitely up for having conversations about that yeah well i normally like wrap things up by saying kind of like what's next and that would be a really lovely uh, i would love that to be what's next because it's it's something that's been playing on my mind for a few years now um and i don't know whether it's a film i don't know whether it's a conversation i don't know whether it's i don't know what it is but i feel as if that's um something that isn't being talked about yeah um yeah so anyway watch this space yeah absolutely oh mate thank you so much for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure to do it in person as well i think it always just adds Mm. adds something and um mate it's been lovely to uh to spend a bit of time in your company thank you so much for having me it's it's just been absolutely amazing and um yeah hey listen i didn't ask you what's your favorite artwork my favorite artwork um i don't uh i don't know a great deal about art to be quite (laughs) honest with you (laughs) probably I did that, that one on the wall there. Oh, that's impressive. That's, yeah, that's yeah, impressive. that's been in my family okay. since I was since I was five. I don't know. Do you know what? I've, I've had some cracking artists on. Oh, really? I'll have to uh, point you to somebody. Um, okay. Somebody. Uh, I'd love to hear yeah, about so it. Yeah, so one of them. I'd yeah. love to hear about so, yeah. it. Uh, oh, mate. Thank you very much, Angela. Cheers, Thank mate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I cut. There we go. A big up to the proper mental podcast. A proper mental podcast. <laughs>